shame at all, we're going to go ahead and start Christmas music on the Corey Truax Show. And we'll start with some good news right after this. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains. Advent season or Merry Christmas, whatever you prefer. We have five Saturdays. That means five episodes of the Corey Truax Show in December. And it is indeed the most wonderful time of the year after football season. So the most wonderful time of the year is back in September when we kick up to football. Uh, But then it is the Christmas season. I'm glad that it is finally here. My name is Corey Truax, securing the blessings of liberty since 1986. We are also dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk, about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you with us on Christian Talk 660 or on all the various and sundry podcasting apps where we reside. I want to start positive and maybe keep it there because here is what I know I'm supposed to do. I'm in talk radio. I do podcasting. Here's what I'm supposed to talk about. There's a caravan of brown people who are trying to invade the United States and there's been tear gas, and I am for and or against the use of it. That's what I'm supposed to do. Also, Twitter has decided to ban science itself and not allow people to use the proper pronoun for people who were born male or female. They're going to ban people. And I'm supposed to be very upset about said decision. And I know I'm supposed to be upset about it because the news told me so. But that's how we know we're dedicated to smarter, better, deeper talk, because we're not going to do that vapid inanity on today's show. So let's actually start with Christmas. One of my favorite lines in any Christmas song is from A Holy Night, which is inarguably the best Christmas song, by the way. If you have a different opinion, I'm just going to go and say it. You're wrong. There's only, only one can be the best, and A Holy Night is the best of all the Christmas songs, partly for theological purposes, but also just great melody and harmonies. It's a great song. And one of my favorite lines there is, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And because it's a song that we've sung a lot, because it is a song with which we have a great deal of familiarity, we just kind of sing over those few words, a thrill of hope. Don't you feel like sometimes we need some hope, guys? I get really sentimental, reflective this time of year. Maybe you're just in some sort of part of life right now where you get more sentimental and reflective. And I have found that after all of those things that Maslow taught us in psychology class and Maslow's hierarchies where we got to have food and shelter and we got to have uh, we got to have clothing, and you know, one of the things that gets left out is you have to have hope. It's when you don't that things get dangerous. It's when you don't that depression happens. It's when you don't that all of the emotional trauma takes place. It's when you don't feel like there's any hope. And this word in that song that goes along with it, this thrill of hope, this is what 
this is part of what this Advent season, this Christmas season is all about. I mean, just recall what we're talking about here in the biblical narrative. From the proto-evangelium, from Genesis, from this prophecy that, oh, there's going to be the snake and he's going to bite the heel of the woman, but then that seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the snake. From that one prophecy all the way through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that there's going to be one come through this line to make all things right, and then literally thousands of years through Egypt, and then the wilderness, and the tabernacle, and the temple, and then Saul, and David, and Solomon, and the splitting of the kingdoms of Israel, and all the prophets, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, and then getting all the way through to guys that you don't even read, like uh, like Obadiah, and, uh, and Malachi, and Micah, and throughout this process, and this time, this prophecy continually being given to God's people. There is someone coming. You can have hope, and he's going to crush these these wicked leaders of the world, the wicked systems, the wicked philosophies, the wicked governments, and he's going to come, and he's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to be a prince of peace. In the times that the people of God were hearing this, you know what they needed? They needed some hope. Because we all need it. And there's something thrilling about hope. Especially if you haven't had it. You can take it to something that's mundane. You can take it to sports where you're 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 down by you're down by five in a basketball game with two minutes left and your best player gets hurt and he comes charging out of the locker room like he's gonna be okay, and there's the thrill of hope, the crowd goes wild. You can take it to literature, you can take it to a movie where where it all seems lost after this main character goes down, but then there is this there's a scene rising from the ashes where it seems like there could be hope and it's thrilling. There's a thrill of hope. This weary world rejoices. I don't know about you guys. I'm weary. I'm part of that weary world that needs to rejoice. And the the message of the Advent season, this Christmas season, is, hey, there is a thrill of hope. This weary world can rejoice, and we still believe that. Not just for the first coming of Jesus, but if you're listening right now and you're part of the Christian faith, that's part of what we're counting on. The anticipation with which your kids look at that tree, the anticipation with which your kids are are shaking things under the tree, under these gifts, their anticipation they are having for we're having for December 25th and all of that hope for what is to come is that we get to have that too as much of as as much of as anticipation as your kids have for what they're getting to open in this Christmas season we get to have we this weary world we can rejoice for the thrill of hope of something that I believe so deeply something the Bible tells us so clearly and a promise that if I didn't have, I, I don't know how I'd cope with a, with a lot of the things we have to cope with. But we have this sure promise. The thrill of this hope. This weary world can rejoice because its king will come again. And it's gonna make, he is going to make all things right. Bring justice where there has been none. And so as we start this Advent season, as we start this Christmas season, focus on that. Focus on the fact that there is this thrill of hope. The weary world can rejoice 
because we believe the King is coming again to make all things right. Merry Christmas. Happy Advent season. That's for me and from Beachwood Church, because I don't think I mentioned I am also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at Greenville High School in downtown Greenville on Sunday mornings at 1030. Beachwood Church, Greenville High School, downtown Greenville, Sunday mornings. Would love to have you there. So that's the Advent message of the day. We'll probably try to do something like that for all five episodes in the month of December. Next. So I do some reading when I can. I wish it was more often. i, I got to be honest with you now. I might present myself as well-read, but it's totally a lie. I use a an app called Blinkist. Uh, it's like nine or, I think it's eight or nine bucks a month that I pay for that. And they go through books for you and then present on their, it's like a podcasting thing. It's totally audio. They basically say, uh, if you would have read this book, you would have re- remembered this 15 minutes worth of information. And then you just summarize the book for you. Here's the, you can even do it. I think the first one I actually did was Hillary Clinton's terrible book, uh, the one she did after she, after she lost. And they summarized her book for me in 15 minutes. And I feel like I know enough about that book to talk about it intelligently. And so I've been doing that here recently with a couple books, and to uh, to bring to you this information that I want to bring to you. So as we talk about this spiritual hope in the Advent season, I actually want to remind you: if you live in the United States of America. There's a lot to be happy about. I know you watch the news, and I know you listen to top-of-the-hour news, and you think there's a lot to be outraged about, and there's things to be fearful of, and everything is so terrible. And I actually want to remind you with some information, with some facts. These are not my opinions. With some facts, you actually live in a really incredible time in human history. Let me start with just one example. If you read some of the historians of people like Louis XV, some of the aristocracy and the royalty of Western Europe before we hit the Enlightenment and a lot of the revolutions, if you read those historians and some of the opulence with which they lived, you will read a lot about food. You'll read a lot about those meals and those dinners because what you're getting is contrast. The royal, the aristocrat, what they could have to eat was so different than the common man. And so you'll get really detailed menus. You get really detailed rundown of what the aristocrat, what the what the royal was eating, and you'll start to get these lists of all these different kinds of meats and the whatever vegetables were, were grown in the garden that were ready that day, and maybe a different kind of bread that they had. And one of these books made a great a great point that I wish I had to come up with myself. If you start reading through the food menus of the royals. I'm talking about the king of France. You know what it pales in comparison to? Golden Corral. Consider where you live right now. For 11 bucks, you can go eat better than the king of France ate. You go go ahead, go read the synopses of what the royals and the aristocrats are eating. And then just go hit a buffet. Guys, I know things are rough. I know there's discouraging things. We live in a great time. Let me give you just some of the stats. If you live in the United States of America, you live in a place that has only 4.4% of the world's population. We, we have only 4.4% of the entire world population, but we have 25% of the world's wealth here. 
of the all of the energy consumed, all the electricity, all the coal, of all the energy consumed on planet Earth, this place with 4.4% of the people, we consume 33% of it, and none of us ever really stress about whether or not the power is going to come on. Of all the satellites floating around outer space in orbit, that's really about the future and what kind of hegemony and what kind of influence we will have over the future. Of all of the satellites, of all of the countries in, in, uh, in outer space, the United States of America or companies that are based in America are responsible for 48% of the satellites. If we stopped producing energy, if we stopped getting oil out of the ground, if we stopped mining coal, right this moment, at our current consumption level for energy, we would have enough energy to run this country at its current level for 2,000 years. There is, since 1990, you know, I know it doesn't seem this way because of the Me Too, Me Too movement, which has its very important role, but you may not realize since 1990, the rate of violence against women, sexual assault and physical violence, is down 75% since 1990. And But the news tells you to worry like crazy that there's a rape culture and everything is terrible. Now, uh, we've, I mean, I, I did a whole show on things like rape culture. I'm not denigrating it totally. I'm asking you to get a, a some context on when you live and where you live and how awesome life is in comparison. The news will tell you to be really, really, really upset about mass epidemic of, of cops shooting minorities. And we've been very sensitive on this show to that plight and to that argument. But uh, And then the news will tell you, you, you better be mad, you better be upset, uh, because there's this racist thing happening in the NFL, and people are kneeling for the national anthem, so you better be really, really mad. In that same period since 1990, hate crimes cr- that are blamed on race, it's down 50 since the nineteen thirties, if you add up what Americans what share of their income, so the percentage of their income that had to go to just bare necessities, so we're talking energy, gas, uh, that included rent, food for the family, in terms of share of income, we're down to half, half. Of what it so not in, not in sheer numbers, but what what was the share of share of the household income that had to go to those necessities? We have more spending money than we've ever had. I mean, we're fifty percent down from where we were in nineteen thirty. You know, that makes me think. This is not part of my stats. This just made me think of something. I saw a study here recently on incomes, because that's a uh, that's been a bugaboo for me. Like we have these these awesome economies and things seem to be going well, but incomes have been so stagnant, and it seems like there's not a lot of benefit taking place uh, for like the the normal worker. And I saw a study that showed incomes actually have gone up; they haven't stagnated. The issue has been for employers is all of the increase has been going to health insurance premiums. All the increase is going to stuff the government says they have to pay for. And so companies have been, I think, too obsessed with their shareholders and not obsessed enough with their employees. But there is another explanation here on why our incomes are uh, are rising so slowly. It's because our employers who are trying to give us raises can't. They're spending all their raise money on health insurance premiums, and that's what's soaking in what would otherwise be higher incomes for us. But in any event, here's one that will blow your mind. I feel like we should be having parades over this fact I'm about to give you. The child mortality rate before five years old. 
So the rate of kids dying before they get to five, this is worldwide, by the way, worldwide, is down by 50% since 1990. Half the kids that were dying before five, that, that's, it's half that number of what it was in 1990. That's incredible. Someone much smarter than I am did the math and showed that is the equivalent of having 27 plane crashes per day where everyone on the plane was a kid. It's like those 27 plane crashes not happening. Now, recall how, we, how, how media covers a plane crash. It's, it's wall-to-wall. We don't stop covering a plane crash. But basically, we have stopped, primarily through free market capitalism, by the way, We've stopped the equivalent of 27 plane crashes per day of children under five. That's how successful we've been. That's the time in which we live. If, if you want to know about diseases, check out these stats. Just since 1990, malaria is down 32% worldwide. HIV down 50%. Guys, I remember being in the United States when everyone thought everyone was going to die of HIV or AIDS. Down 50% percent since 1990. Uh, malnutrition down 57 percent. Lower respiratory infections down 66 percent. Measles. There was a time in American history in the last hundred years that people really feared measles. It's down 91 percent. Like this is what a time to be alive guys. And so as we close up this first segment for the Christmas season on the Cory Act show. From a Christian perspective, let's have that thrill of hope. People who are anticipating all things being made right in the end. But let us also embrace right now, there's all kinds of good news out there. And there's a whole lot of voices that want you mad. They want you angry. They want you upset at somebody. They want you to buy their product of, to save yourself from some kind of disaster. They want you to watch their channel so you can feel so, so righteous about those other people. Because those liberals and those conservatives, they're all going to destroy everything. All the while that the news has you all angry... The world's pretty good, guys. We have our struggles. We have our problems. There is no doubt. But I would rather be alive right now than in any other time in human history. We'll be back with more in just a bit. So stick with us for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for sticking with us. Share the show on social media if you'd be so kind and connect to the show on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. And every episode of the show is on demand on iTunes, Apple Podcast. Uh, let's go with Stitcher. Uh, what's the one the kids like? Spotify at CoreyTruax.com. SoundCloud. It's just about everywhere on Anchor. Always appreciated when you listen. I want to share with you some sound now from Brett Weinstein. If you're not familiar with Brett Weinstein, he is a left winger. Uh, if you think of a liberal you know, Brett Weinstein is probably more liberal than that liberal. But he was recently on uh, one of my favorite shows. Uh, it's uh, Really, if, if you're looking for another show to get into, I highly recommend Dave Rubin. Um, Dave Rubin used to be on the Young Turks, so he was on, I would say, the most radically left-wing network even though that's a YouTube network, nevertheless, it has millions of people that watch it. Radical left-wing guy, uh, Ruben was, Dave Ruben. He's also a, he's a gay guy, so he comes from a very secular perspective on lots of things. And I, I would not call him a conservative by any stretch. 
but he has definitely converted to at least some kind of libertarianism, and he's just an interesting thinker. Like He does what so few people do. He actually examines what he thinks. Like Dave Rubin was an interesting guy because he thought some things his whole life, and then he decided to stop and go, huh, I wonder if I'm wrong. And then he rethought those things. So few of us do that. I try to do that regularly. I think it's healthy to go back and think through what we think. You know, I hate. I, mean, I I love all of my listeners, and I am. I really have very few older listeners. And I'm when I say older, I think a lot of you be surprised at how old I mean. Like I don't. There, there's there's a when I was young, I thought I don't know. I thought sixty was old. It's not. It's just not. Uh, especially this day and age. Uh, but I think there is an age that comes where folks decide, I think what I think, and I learned what I learned, and I'm not going to think or learn anymore. That's a horrible place to be. It's a terrible place to be in life, where you think what you think, and you've learned what you've learned, and you're never going to think or learn again. Ah, rethink, relearn, always, always be be trying to improve. In any event, Brett Weinstein, he's being interviewed on Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin has these very interesting conversations uh, with folks like Weinstein. Weinstein is this left-wing crazy who refused to go over the crazy cliff. So he was a, uh, I believe, a university president, or he was high up in a university. He lost his job over not getting on with a big social justice mob on his campus that had to do with had to do with pronouns. I mean, just bottom line, a male is a male and a female is a female. That's how we should, we should go ahead and consider that. Uh, but also about Halloween costumes and how you can't wear Native American stuff. Like, he was just, hey, guys, like, I'm a liberal. Like, we should have... Uh, we should have gay marriage and abortion on demand and high taxes and universal health care and open borders, but men are men and women are women, and also if you wear a, a sombrero, you're not being racist. And that wasn't quite left-wing insanity enough, and so he lost his job uh, there at the college where he was, where he was working. And, and now he and Dave Rubin are having this conversation that a lot of us need to hear as, I, as part of what I consider my goal to be in whatever broadcasting career I get to have is helping people reconcile with one another but also getting people to take the first step to recognize the person who thinks differently than you is not an animal. The person who thinks differently than you is not evil. They just think differently than you. And maybe they should listen to you and you should listen to them and then we should get this. We should be adults and talk about stuff like that. I mean, I... Uh, Matt Walsh, another one of my favorite commentators, made a great point going into Thanksgiving. Yeah, there was all the jokes going around about how people don't talk about politics and religion. Don't talk about politics and religion at Thanksgiving. And he just straight said, I don't want to talk about anything else. What other vapid, stupid thing do you want to talk about? You want to talk about pop culture? You want to come in and talk about what we've been doing this year? Like, what? why wouldn't we talk about the stuff that matters the most to us? Let's do that. Let's talk about important things. And that's where I tend to stand. And that's what you're about to hear with Dave Rubin and Dave Weinstein. And Weinstein, uh, we need to be adults who can have these conversations. So this is a hardcore left-winger. I think with some important points here on how we can maybe, how we can become post-partisan in some way and start to actually listen to one another again, this is Brett Weinstein. And what you raise about, you know, let's say the audience last night at the comedy club, and, you know, this is reliable. This was the second one I did with you. It was exactly the same the first time. The thing that is so heartening is, you know, I can come into a room, and you're right, that room last night must have been 95% right of center. Yeah. 
and first thing you tell them is, here's a, a, a progressive. I'm, I tell them I'm a radical, right? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't dampen their enthusiasm no. one bit. In fact, it, it, they're thrilled to discover that things are not so bleak and that there is somebody on the other side of this thing who's still talking reasonably and can hear them and can see them and doesn't think that they're racist and out of control. I, I just, I, I love that. Both sides need to hear this. There are folks that don't think like you do, who don't think you're evil and terrible, who want to listen. Now, we also need to become those people. We need to be those people for one another. I think it is the, an old Martin Luther King Jr. quote that it's be the change you want to see in the world. Well, if you're really frustrated about how folks on the left don't seem to want to listen and they don't really want to engage on a deeper level, or if you're on the left and you think people on the right don't do that, well, be that person first. First, be the person that wants to hear things you disagree with. And you don't, you don't hate on them, and you don't attack it. You actually do listen. And I, I'm so proud of that conservative room, that Brett Weinstein, this hardcore left-winger, walked into a right-wing room and was not just tolerated, but was embraced. Hey, we want to talk. We actually want to explore these things. And I actually think we as conservatives, on the, people on the right, we are naturally better at this uh, because we don't consider ideas to be affronts to who we are. That's one of the, the chants that takes place at, at protests uh, on college campuses. I've noticed like when Ben Shapiro goes and speaks somewhere, you know, the conservative Ben Shapiro, one of the things they will chant, uh, his protesters, is uh, speech is violence, speech is violence, speech is violence. So words he says that hurts people's feelings, that it's violence. Okay, so no. Speech is not violence. That's not how violence works because violence has, has, has a definition. It's a word with a definition. You don't get to make up a new definition. Speech is not violence, and violence is not speech. And so we conservatives, we just we are better at it. We're better at hearing things we disagree with. There's actually studies on that as well. This is more of Brett Weinstein. And so anyway, you know, I know I take a lot of flack for, you know, interacting with the right and... I'm not listening to that flack. Yeah, because good. It is the best thing we can do is to engage and, uh, you know, when you spot the humanity of the people on the other side, then to the extent that we differ over something, we can talk about it. All right. Well, we could. Keep I could keep going with that, but we'll we will stop it there. I just want to encourage you. Here's someone on the left who disagrees with you about everything, but he makes a very good point. See the humanity in the people that disagree with you. Embrace that they're just a human with different experiences and different backgrounds. And in the spirit of Christmas, in the spirit of Advent, let's have some charity and understanding for one another. Okay, next up, uh, the Gospel Coalition, um, the Canadian version. If, you're not, if you don't follow the, the Gospel Coalition, there's a Canada office. They s had an article that I think for a lot of people of every age, this is relevant. For some of you, you've not been conquered by this, and I mean this, you should be commended. The title of the article is Three Tips to Take Back Your Life from Social Media. Three Tips to Take Back Your Life from Social Media. Now, for some of us, wait, not us. For some of you, you go, well, social media doesn't have my life. I don't spend a lot of time on it. Well, pin a rose on you. I do mean that, for real, though. Like, I say that uh, with, a, with some attitude, trying to be funny. But for those that have gone through this world... That social media really exploded onto the scene in a big way about 10 years ago. If you have not adopted it and you're not always checking it and you're not always scrolling on your phone, 
listen, I admire you. I struggle with this. I got one of those apps on my phone now that will tell me my screen time. So it tells me how how long my screen was on during the week, how many hours per day. And then additional to that, it will let lay out for me how long I was on Instagram or how long I was on Facebook or how long I was on... Actually, I'm very rarely on Snapchat or how long I was on Twitter because I'm trying to get that number down. Like, I, There's a, a great set of... Sh- there's a show on Netflix called Black Mirror that is supposed to have us be thinking about the consequences of our technology because I think we had this explosion of technology with the smartphone. Like we created the smartphone in 2007 or 8 is when the iPhone came out and no one asked the question, should we? We only asked the question, can we? And I would argue, and there's some now some science to suggest that, man, these, these things are just as addictive as a lot of drugs are. Now they're not as destructive necessarily to your brain, but I know it. I, I know, I'll admit it. I'm addicted to my phone. I'm addicted to my iPhone, and I am trying to use it less. And so some there's some tools out there to monitor your screen time, and uh, you can just try to be conscious about it. But I saw this headline, three tips to take back your life from social media, and I knew, yeah, I could use that because I spend too much time out there on the socials. And so let me give you three things, three things from the Gospel Coalition that if you, like me, spend too much time on social media... Uh, how can we take back our lives from those app, those apps like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter? Here we go. Number one, temporarily delete social media apps from your phone, to which I go, nuh-uh, not going to do that. But for real, it is a great idea. Their idea here is you don't have to delete your account, your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter account. Just only look at them from your computer. So you don't carry around your computer literally everywhere. You have your computer at work, which I hope you're not doing too much Facebooking, Instagramming, and uh, and Twittering on, or tweeting on. But uh, you have your computer at home. But that's their point. And I tell you, I wish I'd have thought of this. It's, it's a good idea that if the app is not on your phone, I may look down on my phone to check Facebook again and go, I, I can't. It's not on my phone. I'll have to wait till I get to my computer. Uh, so if you like me, have a tr- trouble doing uh, spending too much time on social media. That's their first tip. It's a good idea. For some time, until you break the addiction, just delete it. Take it off your phone and only access it from your computer. Number two, create private groups on social media to share family photos or, just, or, or for, uh, for your very tight friends. So, for example, on this Beachwood Church, our church has a private Facebook group. Only members of the church are in the Facebook group, and we share their primarily just information, Prayer matters of prayer with one another. But you can do that. Uh, if you find social media to be a tool where you're just trying to connect with family and, a, and a, a set of very close friends, well, then create a group. You can do that very easily. You don't have to be social media savvy. And really just use the group. Post things in the group, and it's not to the broader community. You're not going to end up in, a, uh, in that wormhole sometimes. I don't tend to do this, but I've heard of people doing this, where... They go and look at a friend, and then that friend has a picture with somebody, so they look at that that person's Facebook profile, which connects to someone else they might know, and then an hour goes by, and they've just been stalking people for a while. Uh, so doing that in the private group setting is a, is a good suggestion, too, from the Canadian edition of the Gospel Coalition. And then finally, another tip for breaking your social media habit is avoid posting images to make yourself look good. Now, this is part of the human heart. Uh, what social media has done is not change the human heart. It's just revealed the human heart. Uh, we all like ourselves a lot. We are all self-aggrandizing. 
we are all really uh, well obsessed with trying to get people to like us and to project a certain image. And so th- this is really a matter of the heart. Uh, if if you're posting something and you can and you know if you really do search your heart and you know the reason I am doing this is to impress someone else or maybe sometimes to impress a specific person. Well, then don't. Don't post that thing. Uh, your your heart is already with a uh, with a poor motivation. So three tips from the Gospel Coalition on how to take your life back from social media, delete the apps off your phone, only access it from your computer, create private groups so you're interacting with the specific people you want to interact with, and then check your heart. Uh, avoid posting things that are just to make yourself look good. I have several other thoughts I want to do on today's show, including uh, Heath is out, so I'm doing the sports segment by myself. Uh, but I want to talk about why college football fans are so miserable. Uh, so we'll do that and a lot more when we come back for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. Stick with us. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be loved. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. Thank you for sticking around. Next up on the show... One of the big stories this week was that General Motors announced the cutting of 15,000 jobs, and I believe it was closing four plants, four manufacturing-type centers. If it wasn't four, it was five. Uh, But the bigger story was the 15,000 jobs that would be cut. Just a couple quick comments. One is, guys, do you remember that we had to bail them out 10 years ago? I I was against it because I'm a capitalist, and I believe in creative destruction. I remember being an unpopular voice at the time when everyone said we needed to bail out Wall Street, bail out Bear Stearns, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Uh, we needed to bail out the the insurance companies. I think we bailed out AIG, and we wanted to bail out the car companies. And, you know, then Barack Obama used his old phrase: "It was a uh, GM is alive and Bin Laden is dead." I think was part of the the campaign in 2012. Yeah, I was always against all these things, and it's primarily because of this: GM is poorly run. Uh, GM might be an anachronistic, it could be part of the past. And I saw folks on the left and right trying to use this news to their own advantage for an economic argument. And at some level, I wanted to say to all of them, well, you're all sort of right. Uh, So folks that are just anti-Trump, which, I mean, I'm not exactly pro-Trump, we're we're saying, uh, you know, it's all the tariffs, you're... GM is being wrecked by all the tariffs on steel. They're being hurt by the tariffs. And they are. That's true. That's not false. They, part of their problem is they're being affected by these very stupid tariffs the administration has put on. Because uh, to remind everybody, tariffs are taxes. I tend to be a guy who doesn't want to raise taxes. This president has raised taxes. That's what a tariff is. And then you had folks on the right. They were going, no, no, no. It's not the, I shouldn't say the right. Those are the just Trump people. Because there's a difference between liberal conservative and just pro-Trump, anti-Trump. Uh, the anti-Trump people were, look, the tariffs are ruining everything, and the pro-Trump people were, no, it's all the unions and what the unions cost GM and what they're having to pay for labor and health care, and that's what's really costing them all this overhead. And both of them are right. Th- th- those are both part of the issue. There's a third issue in that GM is poorly run. They're run like it's still the 1970s, and it's not. And so they've been overtaken by... Uh, in the marketplace by more innovative ways of transportation. I mean, Toyota came along. Honda came along. Even here in the United States, if you're, if you're going upper end, a BMW and Mercedes came along. And uh, there's 
sorry, GM. It's just you're uh, you're not competitive anymore. And it's sad for those that are going to be affected on the job side, uh, but this should not be used as occasion to make a political point about unions, cost of labor, tariffs, all of those factored in. But, guys, sometimes things just go down. I don't know why it's so hard for that to, to process. I mean, it's likely the case that most of the companies that existed in 1900 don't exist now. Just how it is. There have been massive companies come and go. I mean, things I grew up with. I remember Washington Mutual being a thing that was on TV when I was a kid. It doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. I mean, this is not, that's just out of business. Uh, I'm not even talking about General Motors going bankrupt here. I, I'm just saying uh, these these are things that happen. This is part this is part of having capitalism, and it's usually good. It means something. It's usually ultimately good. There's pain in the short run, but in the long term, something better comes along, something more stable comes along, uh, because everyone is motivated to make money, guys. That's how this works. Uh, and so I, I kind of went overboard there talking about bankruptcies. GM isn't going bankrupt. They're they're likely in this kind of in this kind of move as they save money to maybe restructure and do some things they're actually doing well, to do those things better, to focus more. Uh, the one, my bigger point here is it's not a good time to try to make a political point. It's, that's not what it's useful for. Okay, next. I got two. I think it was two Facebook messages. Maybe it was one, maybe one on Twitter too. Maybe it was three people. I don't know why people want to talk about the 2020 presidential election. But I had a few people ask, what do you think you want to do? What do you think you're going to do in the 2020 election? Uh, my primary answer is I don't want to think about it because it's not fun, okay? That's what I'm going to do in the 2020 election. Uh, but some seri- there were some scenarios thrown out. So, uh, And since I used to be known for that, I used to be really known for politics and elections and strategy. Uh, so fine. I'll put that hat back on and we'll get into it for a second. Uh, ultimately, what... What's going to happen in 2020, I think, is this is a very normal election. Things have normalized. It's probably not healthy that we are treating the current president as just a normal Republican. It's not a good thing for our morality and our ethics. Uh, but that's where he's kind of fallen. And so I think politically, in terms of voting, he's going to be treated like Bush was treated. Uh, he's going to be treated like, uh, I'm trying to think of you know, George H-Dub. Where he's just gonna, if there's a referendum on, hey, how'd this go? And so, if the economy continues to do okay, I mean, this GM thing is bad news, but it's been mostly good news. Certainly, stocks have taken a, especially tech stocks, taken a beating here at the end of the year. But if generally gas prices stay low and the economy stays fairly strong and unemployment does okay, the same thing I would have said about Barack Obama at the at the time. If if things go on the right track, well, then yeah, people just tend to stick with it. Unless, I mean, unless something really crazy happens, there's an odd input. Incumbency is strong. I I suspect the president to win a, a second term. the 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 argument that Dems have, they can only make it. They can only make this argument against him if they if they nominate a normal human being. If they nominate some kind of radical, if they go do the Beto, Beto O'Rourke thing or Kamala Harris out of California, or they nominate Elizabeth Warren. I do think he wins again. Now, if they nominate a normal person, uh, a moderate type, or a business person, I'm even thinking like a Michael Bloomberg, maybe someone outside of politics, they make the argument, guys, just normalcy. I'm not a radical. 
I'm not doing the uh, transgender pronoun thing. I'm not living off intersectionality and the oppressed groups, and I'm not celebrating the kneeling of the national anthem. Like, I'm not a crazy radical. I don't want socialized medicine, but maybe we just need... I'm not, I'm not for Medicare for all, but maybe we need more government regulation. Like, a normal, like, old-school Democrat? And their argument is, like, we don't want to do anything radical. We just want normalcy. Can we just get back to normalcy, where we're not constantly talking about the volatility of the president's Twitter feed? I think that's a winner. I think that's a, a winner in this situation. At least they have a better, they have a better argument. You know, the the old coalitions still exist. I mean, I, I hate to rain on any kind of Trump parade here, but he ultimately won the election by about fifty thousand votes over three states. It's a little bit more than that. You know, I think it was seventy thousand votes. If you count up his margin of victory in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, that's how he won. If he loses those three states, he loses the presidency. It's just that simple. Those have been traditionally blue states. And the reason he won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan is because black voters didn't show up and vote for Hillary Clinton when they did for Barack Obama. It's, it really is that simple. Um, this, will blow your, this will blow your mind uh, if you want to get into the stats of it. Donald Trump won less of the share of the vote in Michigan than Mitt Romney did. Mitt Romney, by percentage of the vote, did better than Donald Trump, and lost the state. How? Black voters. Black voters showed up for Barack Obama, and they didn't show up for Hillary Clinton. And so when that happened, it wasn't because Trump did so well in Michigan. It's not. He actually didn't even do as well as Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney did better. But it was just uh, it was just black voters didn't show up for Hillary Clinton. And so if they... If they don't have a nominee, if Democrats don't get a nominee to fire up that coalition, it's still out there, it exists, but you actually have to have a nominee that's not the worst, like the most corrupt politician we've ever seen in Hillary Clinton and the most boring vice president ever in Tim Kaine. Like, I, I'm even surprised I remembered his name. He was that unremarkable. Uh, that if, if you nominate someone like that again, yeah, the, I think President Trump wins a, wins a second term. Uh, the other question I was getting was uh, John Kasich, the governor or former governor of Ohio. I think he came in third overall on uh, the last nominating contest. He is the more, uh, I, I would call him a liberal Republican. I don't even think of him as moderate. I mean, he's not moored to the Constitution. He's not moored to conservatism. I mean, he's he's as conservative as Donald Trump is, which is to say not conservative. Uh, the difference is John Kasich has, he actually does have some principles and some values. Those principles and values are not conservative. They're not for limited government like that's not where he lives ideologically, you know. People like me have benefited from this president because the people who have been loyal to him and advised him are actually conservative people. And the president has a personality that rewards his friends, punishes his enemies, and so it's just worked out for me uh, for a lot of that policy, not all of it, but for a lot of it. Um, where Kasich is an actual more ideological, uh, a little bit left of center type guy. There's been some talk about him running third party or running against the president. I mean, if he runs against the president in a Republican primary, he will be destroyed. Uh, he will, I can't imagine him winning more than 35% of the vote in any given state during a primary. I don't know how he would possibly get there. If he goes third party on this thing, I am interested. There is talk out there of uh, trying to get a third party unity ticket together. So a Republican at the top of the ticket and a Democrat as a VP or vice versa. And John Kasich being that Republican. And so you're looking there at some kind of very moderate Democrat. Like you're thinking uh, a Jim Webb out of Virginia or 
uh, may, maybe even like a there's there's there was some uh, liberal general like a military I can I'm so good with names I'm forgetting his name uh, but he was thinking about running a, as a Democrat he was involved in Afghanistan and the surge but I mean he's a Democrat and he's a military guy um, but he's mod he's a moderate guy so he's not one of the crazy left wingers he's more like a John F Kennedy type. Democrat. And if Kasich got together with a Democrat like that, yeah, there's an argument. There's an argument to make that there's a path to victory if Democrats nominate an insane left-winger and Donald Trump has his his coalition, that there could be a left-wing uh, thing out there. Uh, if specific to me, excuse me, there could be a, there could be a, not, not a left-wing, there's a route out there for something in the middle. There's a route to a, a victory, possibly. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's going to be a normal election. The president has every reason to win. Uh, it's really up to the Democrats to nominate a normal human being. Uh, one other thought I had on this is if you have to pick anybody of the 535 members of this House and the Senate, the, and then you go to the vice president and the president, so that's 537 people, if there's one of them that we need right now, it's Ben Sass. If I could choose our leader, I would choose Ben Sass. He's a senator from Nebraska. He's the exact voice we need. He's a voice that steps into the room and says, so, guys, we have self-driving cars that are staring us in the face. In about 10 years or less, the most common job for a man without a college degree is to drive something, deliver something, uh, to be a driver. Hey, what are we going to do about that? And he walks in the room and looks for ideas. And it's, it's not about war. It's not about fighting. It's not about winning the next election. It's not about raising money. It's not even about necessarily... Uh, my conservative ideology, he's just a guy that looks at the world and goes, okay, so our current financial state's totally unstable and irreconcilable with reality, so what are we going to cut, guys? How are we going to go about this? I love his I love his attitude. He's, so, he's also winsome. He's likable. Uh, he, he treats everybody really well. He's not always looking for a fight like we see quite a bit out there. So uh, he would be the guy, and there's some. There has been some rumblings about him running as an independent. If he did, I'd get behind him. I'd be very glad to vote for Ben Sass. Uh, but if for those of you who are very dedicated to a Trump second term, that could hurt him. Uh, it would be a much. It'd be a much stronger opponent than Evan Mulch. If you remember, uh, Evan Mulch was the guy, or Evan M- M- I can't remember his name. He's the guy I voted for in 2016. Uh, he was the Mormon guy. Out of Utah, out of Utah, and um, he he ran third party. He's like the conservative option, if and got nothing really. I don't even think he got one percent of the vote nationally. Ben Sass, I think, would be a, a different problem altogether for the president. Okay, so I got to ask about twenty twenty stuff. That's where I stand and where I think things are going to go. So uh, Heath is sick this week, so uh, send him your your prayers uh, in terms of uh, for his his recovery. But in our final minutes here, I do want to get into a little bit of sports with this thought. Uh, this week, Dabo Sweeney, the Clemson coach, got some attention because he he complained or called out Clemson fans over not being satisfied with defeating their rival, the South Carolina Gamecocks, by 21. Uh, one of the Clemson beat writers, I think a guy named Hood, something Hood, wrote a story where uh, the headline was when a win feels like a loss. So they they beat their rival by 21, but it feels like a loss because they scored so many points. And it reminded me of this. Like, this is the reason why I like the NFL better than college. And it's primarily the fans. Because college fans, I don't think it's a majority. I think it's a minority. 
But there are some college fans. They're just insane people. They're they're really idolatrous. That's really the word. They've they have picked up a spiritual ideology uh, idolatry. They idolize their team. They find personal meaning and personal self actualization in how this college. They a lot of them didn't even attend how their football team uh, acquits itself on a Saturday afternoon. I'm going to call that what that is. That's insane. That's insane behavior. It's crazy. But this is what I've noticed about Clemson fans in particular, and I tend to follow the Clemson Tigers, so I I might even count myself among Clemson fans. I have found Clemson fans, Clemson football fans, to be the most miserable people in the world. I've never seen a team with so much success find so many things to be upset about, so many things to be disappointed in. Like I think I mentioned it last week. There was a a, a draft predictor who had uh, three out of the four defensive linemen for Clemson going in the first round. I actually saw Clemson fans commenting about how the media hates and they didn't put all four of them in the first round. You know what? No team's ever had that, okay? That's a really weird expectation that you've given. It's, it's just a weird way to behave, a weird weird thing to be disappointed in. Uh, you, you can see the Clemson I – mean, really, over the last ten years – one team can say they've had a better 10 years than the Clemson Tigers. That's Alabama. And then really only Ohio State could say maybe they've had as good a last 10 years. So here you have this team here in the upstate of South Carolina with no logical reason they should be this good. Like they don't have the location or I guess they do have the facility now for it. But in any event, they have all this success, but they seem to be the most miserable people always finding something to be upset about. Where I, being like a not like a hardcore Clemson fan, but a Clemson fan, can just enjoy it. Like, this is awesome. It sure is fun to have a team that's this good in this state for however long they're going to be this good. And this is why NFL fans are just super, like, they're, they're, more, they're more fun. They know how to enjoy success when it comes. All right, we run, run out of time. Highly appreciate it. If you would share the show on social media, tell someone about it, continue to help grow this audience. Thank you for being along for the ride every week. I mean that. It's a genuine honor to have you with us. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.